everyone and welcome back to another episode of Women Talk Tech. Super excited for you all to hear this conversation as I'm joined by Latham Matz, co-founder of FinMarie, Europe's first online investment solution made for women by women. Latham provides her advice on how to found a company, a topic I wish was covered more as we hear a lot about being your own boss, but in terms of actually doing it, how do we actually get started building something from scratch? Later shares how to navigate the first 90 days, the boring stuff, the creative stuff, knowing what to prioritize and so much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation. So Later, tell me a little bit more about yourself. So I have been, well, let me start here. <laughs> I've, I've spent my life in technology sort of accidentally. So um, when I graduated from university, uh, it was kind of the dawn of uh, commercial internet. And so having you know, already built a website at that point, uh, I, I was already immediately qualified to go into technology. Uh, but so I have spent really my career in product and in developing uh, internet products for various companies and various organizations over the past 20 years. Wow, wow, amazing, amazing. And before we kind of get into the entire topic of DNI uh, in terms of that, but what does it mean to you, just very briefly, and why do you think it's particularly important to have this conversation? So the conversation around diversity and inclusion is really one that I think when we are talking about business, I, I don't know of anybody who would tell you these days that you don't want a diverse and inclusive organization, right? Like who, who's going to say that now? I, I think the, the, the real question these days is how do you do it? How do you make it effective? How do you, how do you make it sustainable? Um, I think we already probably have already read all of the statistics that show how you make better decisions when you have a diverse organization. You know, you you might actually go a little bit faster in decision making if you have a dictatorship, you know, but if you if you have a group uh, that is bringing uh, their diverse experiences and their diverse viewpoints to the table, I think you actually end up with better uh, decision making and better processes. And, you know, this is borne out in a lot of the research that uh, groups like McKinsey have done on how you build organizations that last, how you build organizations that are effective in the long run. So, yeah, at this point, I think the, the conversation about diversity and inclusion really needs to mature to the point where we're talking about, you know, how do you make it possible? How do you bring uh, these diverse voices into your organization? How do you keep them there? How do you keep them happy? Um, so it comes to a little bit more around uh, maturing and, uh, and creating stability in your organization. Wow. Yeah. Do you know, I couldn't agree more. And it's probably something I've not really thought about until you just said it, how probably I've how I would have imagined to, for it to be said, it's less about why it's important. We know why it's important. It's kind of like healthy eating. We know that we should probably exercise. We know we should live a healthy life. And I think now it's all about turning the conversation to, okay, how do we actually do that? Yeah. What steps do we need to do to actually make that happen? The yeah. benefits are there. We see it. We see it in full force with various amounts of data. But you're so right. I think now it's about maturing with that conversation to a step further and how we actually achieve that because many companies will be struggling with that aspect in different ways so what tangible things could a company be doing to actually make that happen 
And I think that's the tricky part. There's not a one size fits all. You know, you can't just copy um, what some organization in Norway is doing and um, make that a part of your organization because you're in you're in a different cultural uh, area. You have uh, different conditions in your company. So um, I think that's what really brings the uh, the complexity to this topic is how do you apply it uh, to the set of conditions that you find yourself in. Yeah, yeah, totally. And let's go back, let's kind of go into a bit more about yourself and a bit more about your journey, because of course, you are now the co-founder of Finmarie. Um, I'll leave you to, of course, tell us a bit more about it. But yeah, um, I guess walk us back to the beginning. Uh, and how are you where you are today? Absolutely. When I, when I, when I first moved to Germany, I got involved in fintech actually because I was really kind of a data nerd. I was I was very uh, interested in how this uh, regulation uh, PSD two um, was going to change the data relationship between consumers and their financial data, um, and so this was uh, really a passion for me and very exciting for me. And so at that point. I joined a different company as a co-founder, and that was Zuper. And we were really focused on how do you bring people uh, their data in a way that makes sense for them, in a way that is actionable for them. And and actually, it was through this journey uh, that I discovered that a lot of people feel really mm, alienated from their finances. A lot of people feel really like uh, finance, mm, it's not my thing, it's not my area, I, I don't have a knack for that, I don't have a talent for it. But um, you know, one of the things that um, I've always thought about this is that you know, we, we can grow and we can develop. We have, we have the ability to learn over time. And when I met my co-founder, uh, Carolina Decker, um, we, we were actually just having drinks. Uh, we uh, we were having cocktails on a rooftop uh, in the summer. I mean, how nice is that? I love but that. <laughs> we we sat down with our drinks, and uh, she was on a break from Deutsche Bank. She was an investment manager there, and we talked about how few women we knew um, were willing to engage in financial conversations, how few women um, were really taking care of their long-term financial planning and the big topics in their lives. And this was kind of like blowing our minds because uh, for both of us, we recognized that like money is power. You know, money is opportunity. Money is so many things in our lives. It is this kind of universal solvent that just makes everything you want to do easier. And so why shouldn't um, people in general, but uh, specifically women, uh, think about, for example, the pay gaps in their lives, the pension gaps in their lives, these these big issues. Um, and so actually, at first, we just started a nonprofit organization. Ah, and would you say that was kind of your main motivation, just kind of, I guess, being there and, and kind of seeing, I mean, I can relate, I probably shy away from any sort of money conversation, even now, um, definitely more so as a, as a, as a kind of young adult. But I think you're so right. You go out to dinner parties, you go for a meal, and very rarely do I sit down and speak with my best friend about money. Um, I think I've had one conversation with one of my best friends about money, and that was because I was telling her you need to start saving. And that was about it. 
No, totally. And, you know, depending on the culture that you come from, it's a very different situation. So like I grew up in the United States and it was so easy to get into debt. So uh, I had this huge pile of consumer debt. I had a huge pile of, uh, of student loan debt. Um, and that was just uh, part of the cultural environment. You know, you could open a credit card. Uh, they would they would trade you the application that you made for like a candy bar or a T-shirt or something at the university where I went to school. And and it's just like there was no financial education that was also a part of that package. It was just it was just oh you know you 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 want a snack? Well, fill out this uh, credit card application. And and that was you know ultimately it really reduced the opportunities that I had for for many years I couldn't I couldn't start um, anything new without feeling the weight of this debt you know I couldn't I couldn't join a nonprofit because they didn't you know pay enough uh, for me to uh, to cover my debt and my rent at the same time so I, I really saw early on how these uh, these consumer debt issues um, were, you know, cramping my style, you know, they were, they were shrinking my opportunities over time. Yeah. And you're so right. I, I think as well, right. I, like I said, I don't think it's, I don't want to say it's a gender thing, but I must admit maybe if I was a male and my dad would have had more conversations with me about finances, but my mom, we did not speak about money. You know, I don't know if it's like a thing. And I also assume that to know about finances and to be good at finance, you had to be good at maths or you had to have gone to university and studied, you know, some sort of number degree, et cetera. And really now finances is so much more than that. Yeah, and particularly with investments. So, so women uh, we find tend to be head of household um, when it comes to budgeting. You know, they tend to keep a tight rein on what happens in the household purchases. You know, maybe they're coupon queens. You know, the the kinds of purchases that um, that our mothers and the women in our families uh, do. Uh, are tend to be those smaller purchases. And, and so that's interesting because you will have conversations with a lot of women in your life about things, oh, I got this on sale. You know, <laughs> I, I got such a deal on this. Um, but it's not those larger topics around like, okay, uh, where are you investing for your retirement? You know, what are your plans to make up for the pension gap that you're expecting? You know, what, uh, what kind of insurance do you, um, do you need in your life to feel secure. You know, those, those are not questions that we, we tend to talk with um, our, our girlfriends about, for example. Yeah. And, you know, why do you think this is the case? I'm sure you've probably spoke, thought about this yourself, right, in terms of in the company you've built. But why is this why is this actually a thing? <laughs> well, I mean, I think there are some there are some cultural barriers. Um, yeah. You know, we talk a lot about money mindset, which is it's kind of this squishy notion. But um, when we talk about money mindset, it's, it's like some of it is uh, are you growth oriented or are you do you have kind of this fixed mindset? So you can see this actually, too, when people look at, uh, for example, sport or or art, you know, do they say, oh, I could I could never draw like that. I could never run like that because I just don't have the talent. So that's that's this fixed mindset that people tend to also apply to finances like, oh, I just I don't have any uh, any talent for for numbers. 
And, and, and to be honest, you know, I, I don't consider myself a math whiz either, but you don't need to be a math whiz in order to understand, you know, the basic things around, for example, compound interest. Um, and so one of the things that we find is this mindset difference between growth mindset and fixed mindset. And yeah. then the other thing is the cultural environment in which you exist. So, for example, here in Germany, even, I've talked to a lot of um, women or men who grew up in East Germany. And the notion that they got from growing up there was that, you know, money is capitalist and capitalist is evil, you know, <laughs> or yeah. money yeah. is something that you should never talk about or money just creates problems in your relationships. So don't bring it up. And, um, and so there are some social barriers then that people carry with them over time or just kind of absorb. And it's, it's helpful to kind of think about, like, what is your relationship with money in the little idioms that run around in your head, you know, like, yeah, what wow. are the things, what, what is your self-talk? Yeah, you know, honestly, so much to unpack there, really. But, but I guess in terms of yourself and you being a female founder in, in, in probably, again, another male-dominated space in terms of finance, how have you found that? How have you found your journey? How have you found navigating, I guess, the world of finances as a female? Yeah, <laughs> it's well. So I, it's interesting because I think it is um, a really good time actually to be a female founder in some ways because we are getting more visibility. Right, there are more programs that are focused on female founders. There are more, uh, there are more stipends and grants that are focused specifically on getting more women into uh, entrepreneurship. And yeah. so I think that part of it is great. Uh, so the visibility piece of it is increasing. But the, the, the negative side is that um, there is more focus on this because we are so few. <laughs> and, yeah. and unfortunately, this, this does continue. And so um, even when I go to a lot of startup conferences, you know, it is, it is more male heavy uh, in many cases. And, and sometimes, you know, I, I do encounter, you know, kind of negativity even around the fact that we focus our business on really getting women um, involved in finance and educated about finance and excited about their finances, because, you know, people will say, oh, well, does that mean you exclude men? You know, does that mean, yeah, and, and I have to explain now, it's, it's like a target market. You know, this is, this is like marketing 101. You, you have a target market and you focus on those people and you make the product kind of perfect for mm. that audience. Wow. Wow. And what do you like about being a, a female founder? I think, you know, you mentioned that it's a really good time and I think you're so right. There's a lot more visibility. We're having a lot more conversations about being a female founder, which I think is great. Um, what do you particularly like about your role? I mean, what's your favorite thing about being a female founder today? Yeah, I mean, I think my favorite thing about being a female founder is actually that we are creating more of these like networks. Yeah. So um, the the fact that, uh, for example, um, I was part of the Google for Founders program um, and the the section in Berlin really focused on female founders and and getting connected um, with especially other women um, has been really helpful and um, really fulfilling 
personally. Um, so I think one of the things that I've read about networks is that it's really useful to have both like mixed gender networks and um, diverse networks, um, but then also um, some networks where you have um, a, an affiliation or um, a real focus, like, you know, maybe it's a, it's a female founders network. Um, so everybody in that network really understands your pain on a daily basis, yeah. you know, versus, versus you, like I go out to my really mixed and diverse networks to uh, ask questions sometimes about like, how are you handling this, you know, legal aspect that, you know, the, the government is now bringing into oversight of employee hours or something like this. So I, I think that there are different uses at different times for these networks, but I'm just, I'm happy that they seem to be blossoming at this point. Yeah, I think more so than now than ever, I think. I think I've seen so much um, networks, events, or even just groups of, of female founders really coming together. And I think it really does create that sense of community whereby you don't feel alone because being a founder, especially if you don't have a co-founder, it can sometimes be quite a lonely journey and a hard one, right? So having people around you that do support you and, and have been through a similar situation is so important. Yeah, absolutely. And and having people that understand the yeah. kind of mental stress uh, that you have as a founder, which is is kind of unique. I mean, I, I think we can talk about that a little bit later when we talk about how you start things, how you found things. But yeah, this is something that it's really rare to find uh, somebody who really understands uh, how that works and can empathize. Yeah, yeah. And let's talk about Finmarie in more detail, because I personally love um, businesses and companies, products that are helping women to do more with, with their money, I must admit, because it's a, it's a space that I'm very lacking of knowledge in. Um, but yeah, tell me about what, you know, tell me a bit more about what Finmarie does and kind of, yeah, the business model in that, in that sense. Absolutely. So Finmarie really uh, has always focused on women and finances. And so there's there's so much to unpack there. There's so much that you can dig into there, right? Um, but the, the core of it is that um, the first thing that we've always done is to say, okay, you, uh, you need to save. And then after you save, you need to start investing. Um, and investing is going to be the leg up that you need to start uh, creating a passive income stream for yourself. And the the thing that um, we see, especially in Germany, is that a, a lot of people tend to save and not move to investment. And, and mm -hmm. women in particular uh, often have this investment gap where, you know, they will save, but they don't begin in investing. So, so our our main goal really is to help people get over that issue of just like getting started. How do you, how do you move to this next level and feel comfort in doing this either yourself or with a, with a coach? The, the thing about it is that um, beginnings are difficult, right? Uh, and, and making finance a priority in your life, um, even though it's an, an, an a really, really uh, important topic. Um, a lot of people just kind of put it aside, push it off. And um, so our aim as a business is to, uh, especially uh, in the case of women, bring women in, get them excited about this topic, get them the education or the information or the package of tooling that they need and to, to get them on their way. 
Wow. Yeah. And you know, I can really relate. I feel like this whole podcast is like, I can really relate, but I can really relate to saving and not knowing where to invest or even what investing is and what, where to even start. So yeah, I think there's probably so much there. So many other women that are probably feeling the exact same. Yeah. And, you know, once you start investing, once um, once the women that we uh, have in our customer group have started on this path, you know, it's it's essentially like they're on fire for it. They're like, OK, I have the power, you know, and then um, and then they want to work out their their insurance. They want to work out their retirement. They want to have all of this kind of under control. And it's it's really inspiring to see from, you know, a product development standpoint, like that you are creating really substantial change in people's lives. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, we have got to a point where we are starting to talk more about money, you know, these conversations, you know, businesses like yourself that are doing, we are talking about it, um, just about, but what's next, you know, like you said, you know, we're talking about it, we're having these conversations, but then what do we do next? And kind of what's the gap there? Do you feel that we, we have to kind of overcome now? Well, so this is this is an interesting topic and one that I was addressing in a podcast just recently with uh, the co-founder of Radish Credit. Um, and so that organization is really focused on how do you bring consumer loans to unaddressed groups. So to answer your question, I think the next step is how do we narrow cast or focus product um, in a way that makes sense for these underrepresented groups and their needs, right? Um, one of the startups that I often point to in this area is Bloom Money. Um, and so that is a startup in the UK, um, which is really focused on uh, bringing a credit model uh, into kind of a digital space. So this is a credit model that has been practiced in various uh, countries in Africa uh, for, for many years. And how do you digitize that? How do you make the tooling easier for people to make the relationships? And I think in some cases, uh, finance has, and, and, and the financial industry has been uh, reticent to develop yeah these kinds of tools for audiences that they saw as too niche. You know, they, uh, they have the way that they do things. They are protected organizations. You know, they have a relationship with uh, the, the economies of their countries. And so they don't take a lot of risks in making new product for new groups or uh, for new needs. And I think, I think that's the area that um, we can really focus on next is there's, okay, you identify a group you identify the needs that that group has, and then you build product that helps them to accomplish their goals. Yeah, yeah. And what do you hope to achieve through Fimmery? Like, what are the main goals for you as a business, as, a, as, a, as an organization? What do you actually hope to see through what you're doing? Well, I mean, we have really uh, specific goals around, uh, for example, this investment gap, this yeah. retirement gap, and ultimately uh, the pay gap. So, uh, so these things are um, are really measurable targets uh, here in Germany. The uh, the pay gap is like eighteen um, percent, and and certainly the investment gap uh, overall, you know, worldwide. Uh, for women is um, is significant everywhere you go. So the closer that we can get to equality, uh, the closer that um, that we get to something that I think is really exciting. Because when more women invest, women tend to invest in things that um, that they believe in. So they invest in communities. They invest in uh, sustainable 
uh, investments, and um, they tend to refocus their money on uh, meaningful projects. Um, and so um, the more women you have um, as investors, the more women who are growing and building wealth, um, I, I think the, the better the world gets ultimately. Yeah, yeah. And I love sharing the successes of, you know, female founders, uh, female founded companies as well. So, I mean, any great success stories so far? I mean, what's been the biggest achievement you guys have had at Finn Marie in your journey? That's a great question. I think probably the, the biggest achievement that um, we've had would be how do you how do you break through uh, the I think the biggest achievement that we've had so far is um, discoveries in how we break through the uh, lack of motivation or the resistance to movement. So um, the thing about finance is that it does tend to be one of these areas that you could kind of put off to the side. So how do you how do you make uh, finance uh, a really important topic in women's lives and to make it feel approachable? And so we've done that in a few ways. One um, is education. Um, so we have a really defined educational path that we have found is super effective uh, when women get to the end of, for example, eight weeks of academy. Uh, they, they have that check mark. They get a diploma. At that point, they have what they need to get started in investing. So, so that was a real breakthrough for us in understanding that like, some women just want a quantity of information that makes them feel comfortable with the area. Um, and that's a mental breakthrough that uh, that women tend to have that men don't tend to need. And so that's an interesting sex difference is that um, a lot of men tend to just say, OK, well, I'm going to dive in. I'll figure it out. Um, whereas um, women tend to um, want to have a lot more information before they get started with anything. Um, and so this this breakthrough for us was a real uh, understanding of kind of that psychology. Um, then we've also seen that there are differences in uh, in motivation based on age and uh, the needs for for different groups within women. So obviously, women are not like a uniform and homogenous group, <laughs> right? You, and 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 so that's the interesting thing too. It's like we say that we're you know focused on women as a as a target audience, but really women are super diverse, right? So yeah. uh, so who are those different groups of people and what are their needs? Actually, um, actually different, uh, different women at different life stages need different tooling. They have different habits. They have different concerns. And so um, understanding those groups and how we can most efficiently serve each group with different, uh, different functionality, I think, you know, that's um, the complexity uh, that, that we've had to address, uh, but it's also really satisfying when we hit it. Yeah. And it's crazy because you're so right. When you look at women, there's there's many different women for a start and there's different groups. So I feel like it's such a, it is an amazing mission, but it's such a big task, right? Because you're not just helping one group in that, you're helping everyone. And knowing what each group needs is, I'm sure, quite hard to kind of pin down and then provide a solution for that. Exactly. 
exactly. And and so um, even even two people of the same age category uh, living in the same city can have a very different situation when it comes to um, their their life prospects. You know, are they getting are they getting money from their parents? You know, like are they uh, do they have um, some other side hustle? You know, there there can be all kinds of different situations. And how do you how do you craft uh, both messaging, tooling, ideas um, that are going to work for for these different situations. That's yeah. um, that's part of the complexity and, and part of the joy, I think. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I'd love to kind of dig a bit deeper into actually founding a company because I think there could be so many other women listening here today um, thinking, OK, I, I have an idea. Um, what do I do now? And and I think also the idea of actually founding a company can be quite exciting because you have full control, but it can be quite intimidating. So yeah, I guess looking back to your beginning of your career, what were your first steps into actually saying, we're going to go ahead, we're going to build for Marie today. Here's what we are going to do. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is this is a great topic and, and a topic that uh, I get really fired up about because like, how do you begin things, right? Yeah. Like, how do you how do you just get started? I mean, this is um, this is I think also something that I don't hear as much about um, when I'm talking to other founders because um, by the time you are considered a founder. Um, it means you probably already have a team. You probably have something working. Um, so, so at that point, you're already much further along in the process. But yeah. like day one, um, I, day one is so much about faith, right? It's it's so much about personal belief that the thing that you want to do, the thing that you want to create in the world. Um, you almost have to believe that it exists already. And then you have to start convincing other people that it exists already and that it's worthy of their time and worthy of, you know, their commitment and energy to help you with it. Right. So you, you almost have to be this, uh, I don't know, it's almost a form of insanity, right? Like where you have to have this, this absolute belief and this, um, this confidence in a thing that doesn't exist yet. And so I, I find that a really interesting stage because the stage where you only have energy, you only have intention, you only have um, your, your idea is a really mm, vulnerable stage. Um, but it's also, it's also one that I think is, is really a, a point of a really psychological becoming rather than um, rather than even physical becoming at that point. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I was, you know, I was thinking, okay, what, what is the first step? But you're right, it's just it is just believing that you're going to be a millionaire, this is going to work out, the business isn't going to go under, we're going to be absolutely fine, we're going to be, you know, that we're going to be successful. And that in itself, somewhat is the very first step, otherwise you wouldn't even do what you're doing. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I, I saw this video many years ago. It was it was like a festival, but nobody was dancing. And then it, like one guy came out and started dancing. And like this one guy who's just dancing all by himself just looks insane, right? Like he just looks, he just looks like the crazy guy. Um, but then after a while, somebody else joined him, right? Like, and that second person who joined him, okay, they both look a little bit crazy together. Oh. 
then after there are three and four and five people, okay, then it starts looking like a party, right? Like then it starts looking like something is actually happening over there. And by the time you get to 20 or 50 or a thousand people, like suddenly this insane guy here has started this movement. And I think you really have to do the same thing with, uh, with your business building. You have to be that crazy person who goes out there and says, okay, I'm going to dance by myself until somebody joins me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And what were your first steps? Did you kind of decide on a name, decide on the, the kind of vision? What kind of like, like I said, day one, of course, I've got the belief, but what do I actually need to do? Or did you do that before you kind of decided to get started? How did it work? So actually, when uh, Carolina and I started, we started this nonprofit organization, right? And so the nonprofit organization was something that we ran for a while with like a lot of workshops. We we even did like a full uh, conference uh, and had like all of these speakers and events. And one of the things that that proved to us is that okay, there there's a there's an audience here. Uh, there are people who have this issue. It's not just us. <laughs> it's not it's not just in our imagination. Um, And so, you know, it was sort of accidentally that uh, through this nonprofit organization that we put together, we found that the demand in the market was there. Um, And so I think one of the one of the first things that you need to do is is really just to test um, whether uh, there is demand for what it is that you would like to offer. And I think you do this even before you establish a name. You do this before you establish, you know, a business entity. Um, is is finding uh, finding those first customers, finding that demand. And once you have established that that exists, and in that case, um, we established that, wow, okay, there's, there's an audience for this. You know, there are people who want to learn about finances. There are people who want to spend their entire summer Saturday uh, talking about their financial plans. Great. Okay, that exists. Um, yeah. At that point, uh, so my co-founder Carolina, um, you know, she established uh, the FinMurray name and the, the business um, at the time, I was I was still actually with uh, my other company, and we uh, we talked about it over time. Initially, she just ran the business as a very small consultancy. So, um, you know, she was that single person uh, who was interacting with the customers and really getting those first sales. Um, and what happens beyond that is that. Once you have the first sales, you have to start thinking about, okay, how can, how can this grow? How can we build this? Who needs to be part of the team to, to really develop this? And so when my co-founder, Rika, um, who is really an expert in brand development and marketing, and I, who am more of an expert in product development and uh, technology, um, when we joined, it was at a later step when um, it had already been established that the audience was there, the ability to make money was there, and we just needed to start scaling it and to start growing it. So it really goes stepwise in this case. You, yeah. Um, but yeah, of course, uh, it comes down to the basic economic supply and demand. Is, is, the, is de- the demand there? Okay, then you need to create the supply. Yeah, yeah. And I guess kind of almost testing it, like just seeing, okay, is this going to work? You know, like you mentioned, your co-founder did some consulting work. She kind of saw that, okay, there is a there is a demand for this. There is 
we can actually make money from this. Because I think that's that's also yes. a very tricky thing. I know we yes. spoke about money before, but building a company and being a founder, of course, there is that kind of, I guess, the money interest. You want to to kind of make money from it Absolutely. as well. And there's no, I mean, I don't want to say this, but there's no point in having an amazing business if it's not profitable and you're not actually benefiting from it. Because I guess that is the whole point of being an entrepreneur. It's the whole point of being a founder is that you actually have financial freedom. Um, So I guess making sure that you can still make money from the business is equally as important. Yeah. And this, this idea of willingness to pay is really about testing your demand again um it's it's people will talk a lot about oh that's a great idea oh i love that oh i think that's super cool that you're doing that but when they actually start putting down uh, their dollars or their euros or their pounds or whatever it is their hard-earned money um, to back your idea then you know they're really serious and and so there's nothing like that uh, for really testing uh, the validity of your product. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, let's be honest, building a company, there's probably boring stuff, there's probably creative stuff, there's probably so much that goes into it. You know, I I, I was actually one of the first employees to, to work at Impala Search. So I saw from the very early stages, there's some boring stuff, there's some fun stuff, and it, it all kind of comes into twine. I guess from your side, what do you think should be prioritized? When do you prioritize this? Of course, you need to kind of get things going, but where do you even start with all the stuff that kind of comes into building a company? I, I think that's part of the magic of early stage companies, right? Is is where do you apply your energy today for yeah. the best effect? Uh, and and this is uh, this is one of the things that I think people who need absolute structure and need a lot of information in order to proceed to the next step have a little bit of a harder time with this part. Because in the early stages of a business, you have to you have to do everything. You know, you're 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 hauling equipment. You are uh, you are filing business documents. You are you know maybe maybe you're doing a podcast. You, maybe maybe you are writing um, uh, an email to to your audience. Maybe you're talking with a an investor. Like the kinds of diversity in your daily activities really reflect the chaos that yeah. is going on in that early stage environment. So it, at that point, it helps to really uh, put on the kind of the generalist mind, like really even having a title like, you know, chief product officer doesn't even necessarily make sense at these early stages because everything that you're doing is so diverse yeah. um, and that's just necessary to grow the business um, in in a smart way over time. So yeah, I think you're right. It comes down to prioritizing. Okay, what is the most important thing that I can do today? And you know what um, what are the things that if I don't do them now, I'm I'm really going to regret it in two weeks from now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so a balance I think is is part of the the key there. And and some of that is is just really ambiguous. You can't. You can't just um, always wake up and know um, exactly what you're going to end up doing over the course of the day because yeah, yeah there's this. And I guess 
and I guess somewhat being open to doing more than what you maybe bargained for. You know, let's be honest, right? Being in an early stage company, you are doing way more than than what you thought you would have been doing, way more than maybe what your job title says. Yes. But being being open and being such a journalist is so important because otherwise, if everyone stuck to their main job title or the main job spec, there'd be so many other parts of that need to happen that just wouldn't get happened because everyone would be doing what they thought they needed to do, you know? Yeah. And I find there's this also this kind of a ramp up of how much you need to evangelize for the company, how important it is that you need to do that. So like um, as the founder of a company, uh, as the first mover or the first dancer, you know, you you need to um, to really be. Uh, this uh, this maniac who's out there uh, talking about what the vision is and how big the thing is going to be and how uh, how it's going to develop over time and you need to like make people believe in this vision so that they want to join you they want to become your suppliers they want to come become your backers they want to become members of your team you know you need to you need to almost uh, be like yeah a uh, a preacher of of your <laughs> of your mission and your goal and um and really make people believe in your company yeah yeah and what was the biggest challenge in the very beginning you know I'm sure there would have been loads but what would you say was the biggest challenge in the very early days and how did you overcome this challenge I mean and I think that biggest challenge is being consistent about that belief right yeah. like so you, yeah. you almost have to have this split personality disorder where um where one side of you is just permanently positive and permanently exuberant and um and this is going to work you know you you have to be just uh, unbelievably um optimistic um, on the other side, you know, the other side of your personality has to be really focused. You know, you have to you have to do all of the paperwork. You have to create the forecasts that actually make sense. You know, you you have to do the things and look at the risks that you're actually going to be facing. So then you can do risk mitigation. And so it's really difficult to inhabit both of these sides at the same time. Um, and it's it's really difficult to. Um, to go maybe from one conversation with your uh, your, your tax advisor, um, where you know things are maybe more focused and tense and, and about numbers and this kind of thing, um, and then another conversation with um, with an investor or somebody that you really want to join your team and to be you know uh, completely exuberant. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. it's <laughs> I think this um, this mental performance. Uh, yeah. is uh, is something that is tricky uh, and it's it's a lot of energy and it's it's tricky to maintain that yeah yeah and how did you kind of overcome that was it just a bit of insanity that you kind of have to remain positive or did you kind of have to work on that because I'm sure it is really hard to kind of always be positive right you know there is that person in the room that is always like that but it's really hard especially when things may be mounting up the pressure's getting you know a lot how, how do you kind of overcome that that in in that sense yeah I mean I think for different people the answer is going to be different right for me I I feel like okay when when you go into founder mode okay this is this is founder mode and and it's almost like putting on a costume it's like yeah. it's like I'm in my I'm in my founder costume now and this is this is what founders do right and and so you inhabit that character that persona that personality of the person who is just endless con- endlessly confident yeah. right like endlessly um endlessly uh 
has has all the answers <laughs> has has what the company needs to thrive you know do do you necessarily believe that um you know after dinner when you're kind of going through the course of your day and you're saying okay well you know what did i actually accomplish today i just wrote a lot of emails <laughs> did that feel satisfying maybe not but but the the places that you inhabit in your day i think you have to you have to kind of keep separate, you know? So uh, for, for me, it was really important to, you know, really pick up meditation, um, get into a running habit. Um, and, and so getting into my physical self um, helps to create a separation uh, between, okay, this is, this is my founder persona and, you know, this is me in then my everyday life. Um, but I think different people have different coping strategies uh, for maybe compartmentalizing or sustaining uh, this kind of energy over time. Yeah, yeah. Because I think some people naturally, they are just, they are the founder every hour of the day, which, you know, it works for them, but it may not work for everyone. So I think knowing what's going to work for you and how you're going to separate it. If you're that sort of person that can't separate it and doesn't want to, then of course, don't try. <laughs> but, but if you are knowing that you need to separate things, you want that sort of balance, then of course, go for it. But I guess you're right. It's knowing what's going to work for you and what's going to mean that you are successful in the end of it. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I do consider myself kind of kind of an introvert so it's um, it, there is a different personality that I bring into for example team meetings or into a pitch or into into a podcast for example yeah, um, yeah. then um, what I would focus on really my my quiet work or uh, the the thought processes or the the strategic work that I need to do yeah 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 and I guess one last topic I really wanted to talk to you about is funding because I think it's a topic which we need to be discussing more uh, because I think in the UK, the stats are that only 1% of VC funding goes to female-led companies, which if you really think about that, that is crazy when you look at the numbers. Uh, and I'm sure that I think it's 2% in Germany. Or I can't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, but I know that it's pretty low. Um, how did you find funding? Have you gone through funding? You know, Give me a bit of insight into how that works and what that was like for you as a female founder. It's a wonderful topic and, and one that I think is super slippery. So the, the thing about it is when you present to um, somebody who has money, like whether that's a, a VC or it's a, it's a family fund or it's an angel, um, it's always an individual decision that they make, right? And it is the mass of those individual decisions that reflects what we could call discrimination. <laughs> and, and so it's, it's, it's really interesting because no individual conversation is a real red flag for, um, for okay, we're being dis discriminated against. And, you know, if we were an all-male team, um, we would have gotten the money. It's you can't know, right? Yeah. Like, so that's yeah. what makes it really slippery. Um, we know that uh, discrimination is happening. <laughs> we we know based on the statistics. We also know based on the statistics that um, diverse teams, teams with um, women as part of the leadership, do tend to perform better. Uh, you know, statistically over time. But the 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 sticky part is that um, the biases are kind of baked in, yeah. and um, and 
it's hard to know if you're, you know, if you've been victimized by this, um, because you can't, you know, you can't put your finger into the same river twice, right? <laughs> and, and so there have been various studies that have been done um, that are blind studies um, that allow um, organizations or people to, okay, here, here are the facts about this company. And, you know, would you invest or not? Not knowing the, um, the facts about like who the founders are or who would be presenting it. But when you're at the early stage, um, so much is based on the team and uh, on vibe and on all of these other intangible things. So I think, I think this topic is super interesting, um, but I think it's really difficult to resolve um, because we know that both men and women have these biases against women who are founders. They tend to ask women um, more defensive questions, more negative questions when, when they talk to women founders. Um, and, and so this is, this is something that I think we just can't talk ourselves out of. Um, yeah. And we would have to create uh, probably other methods like um, like maybe even blind investing um, if we wanted to get to something more like parity. I, I don't even necessarily think it's m more women in VC that would fix this. Uh, so so I think it's, it's, it's a really interesting topic and, and a really complex topic. We were able to raise from Hightech Wunde Funds, which is a public-private institution uh, here in Germany, and from uh, Smart Broker, um, which was a strategic investment because they have a brokerage platform. And so they were really interested in what it is that we're doing to focus on uh, this target group. Um, yeah. The uh, the reception that we've gotten from others in in market is is oh well you know uh, maybe this problem isn't large enough maybe the audience isn't large enough uh, you know maybe but so always like kind of legitimate but then yeah when you look at the figures overall you're you're saying like okay this just doesn't add up. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I really agree that it's such a complex topic that I think you're right. Even a conversation like this, a conversation with VCs, it's not going to change that it has to be like really actionable for us to really make make a change on this because the numbers are shocking. Um, like I said, 1%, even if we were to try and get to 50%, even 20%, it's a lot of work to, to really change that. So yeah, it's such a complex topic, which I, I don't know how we will solve it. I really hope we will. But I think, like you said, blind investing is a really good idea because then there's no bias from the very beginning which we do see in a is a massive like I, I don't know if you've watched dragons down yeah 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 I love it but I I see you're right you see female founders come in and they get absolutely grilled they literally absolutely. get fired questions back and forth and the men come in and I think also they watch the women kind of not know how to answer certain questions mm. and then the men come in and they just they either they kind of lie their way through it or they get through it however they do and they just they just get through it and it's crazy when you actually see it in full force and with your eyes how that actually happens yeah yeah uh, absolutely and and I've seen it I've seen it myself like um sitting on juries or uh yeah. sitting in groups of people who are talking about startup pitches you know I you know even in mixed groups um you hear the same kinds of um really 
uh, risk-oriented questions um, yeah. that are posed to, uh, to to female founders. And then, yeah, I, I, in one case, I, I remember seeing this uh, this group. It was a couple of, um, you know, really young, good-looking guys who were doing this, like, uh, it was a fitness startup. And and really, they got all these softball questions. And and, and, and I was just like, oh, you, you like, I think, I think there's that too, you know, like people who are attractive, um, you know, tend to make more money. People who are attractive tend to, uh, to have more of a good vibe with, yeah. <laughs> with investors or judges, et cetera. Yeah. So yeah, it's, these are, these are really complex topics and it would be great if we could do blind investment, but you know that nobody wants to invest in an unknown founder team. So yeah. that's, that's the problem. Yeah, crazy. Well, honestly, thank you so much for such a great conversation. I feel like those topics I've been wanting to speak about for so long, but it's been so great just to kind of go through them in more detail. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me.